see what uh, what the Lord's will is with this. And in this moment, Pastor Steve is right there now preaching. And so be mindful of that, maybe just in your prayers uh, throughout our time here this morning. All right, it's my privilege to open God's Word for you here today. And in doing so, I want to begin by, by sharing that this week at Bethel, I was given, along with many other staff here, uh, a simple task to complete. I was asked to fill out a personal profile of myself. You see, we're getting ready to kind of do some tweaks and, and re, revamping to our website. And uh, part of that is getting some updated staff biographies on there. And so I was given a series of questions to answer about myself, my family. And some of those questions were very easy. You know, how, how long have you been at Bethel? How many kids do you have? What educational degrees do you have? And other questions, though, were more difficult. Like, what is your favorite, very favorite thing in Northwest Indiana? It's a hard question. I mean, what is the very best thing in Northwest Indiana? Is it our beautiful lake effect winners or our our wonderfully efficient governmental system? What is it? I wish the question was like, what's your kid's favorite thing in Northwest Indiana? Because then it'd be easy. It'd be between like Chuck E. Cheese's and Albany's Candy Factory, something like that. Or, Or here's another difficult question that was on there. What's your spouse's most admirable attribute? And why is that difficult? It's not because my wife doesn't have a lot of admirable attributes. She sure does. It's because that question puts me in a no-win situation. (laughs) Do you know what I mean, guys? I mean, she has so many admirable attributes. How can I choose just one? And whichever one I highlight is going to be at the exclusion of some other. And so if I said, you know, it's her beautiful appearance, she would say, well, what about my warm personality? (laughs) Or if I said, you know, it's it's her godly character, she would say, well, what about the hard work I, I do taking care of our children? Or if I said, kind of quickly cop out and said, you know, she's perfect in every way, you know what I'd hear then? Oh, come on, you know that isn't true. It's a no-win question. It reminds me, those questions remind me of others I've heard as I've been in small groups and they've done, you know, kind of these icebreaker question things. And you hear questions like, you know, what kind of, what kind of fruit describes your personality today? What kind of person asks a question like that? Or, you know, if you could have any superhero power, which power would you choose? How about the power to stop people from asking dumb questions? (laughs) See, regardless of how silly or difficult these questions are, we often ask things like this because we're trying to get to know somebody. We hope that that somehow our answers to those questions, they might help us kind of get a profile of who that person is. They might help you understand who I am, Brad Lagos, my likes, passions, uh, dislikes, interests, etc. And we're well into our study now of the early church, as seen in the book of Acts, and we're essentially trying to do the same thing. We're working to provide a profile for how a church in transition looked. And thus far, we've considered many different uh, characteristics of the early believers, the first Christians. We've seen that they're a group of people who were committed to a mission, and they were indwelt with the Holy Spirit. They were bold in their gospel witness. They were eager uh, to care for one another and to have everything in common, and all these subjects are defining characteristics of the early church. They're clear passions that these first Christians all shared, and today we're going to consider another characteristic or passion of this group of people, and that is this, the early church was passionate about the word of the Lord or the word of God, and we see this reiterated all throughout the book. Let me just tick through a bunch of different passages, Acts 6, 4, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to ministry of the word. Acts 8, 4. Now the believers who were scattered went about preaching the word. 13, 49. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. 
1535, but Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord, with many others also. 185, when Silas and Timothy appeared from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, teaching to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. 1811, and Paul stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. 1920, and so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Over 30 times, the, the church is pictured as engaging in the ministry of the word. And so does what is meant by this oft-repeated phrase, uh, the word of God, or the word of the Lord, or the ministry of the word. You realize this could not mean the whole Bible as we have it today. Couldn't mean this, this compiled book because at this time in history, the New Testament was not yet written. They didn't have a Bible like this like we have. Now, they did have the Old Testament scriptures. But the ministry of the word here must refer to more than just the Old Testament because it clearly includes the life of Jesus. His teaching, miracles, ministry, his death, resurrection, and eternal life that can be found through him. So it's a phrase, it's a summary phrase really for the gospel message and the doctrine of the early church. It's a phrase to describe the totality of their teaching and all the various elements of theology that surrounded it. So it's more than just the gospel itself. It is the doctrine of the early church. And as we look at the prominence of, of this concept throughout Acts, we see this. We see that the early church was utterly devoted to studying and proclaiming the doctrines of the church. They were totally devoted to studying and proclaiming the word of God or the word of the Lord. They were truly passionate for their doctrine. And all throughout Acts, we see, we see the early church focused on its doctrine. Its leaders often went out into uh, new territory to try to proclaim uh, the doctrine of the church to unbelievers. Other teachers often spent long periods of time uh, with believers, helping them grow in their doctrinal understanding. Similar, similarly, we see the believers ardently committed to studying doctrine, often with great zeal and earnestness. So if you were to ask of the people in the early church, like an icebreaker question... Like, you know, what's the most important thing to you or what has had an incredible impact on your life? Many would undoubtedly say, our doctrine. And while we could look at dozens of passages of Scripture in Acts that show the early Christians studying and proclaiming their doctrine, let's consider one that's particularly representative of these. So turn with me, if you would, to Acts chapter 17. Chapter 17 in the book of Acts, one example of, of the church's doctrinal devotion. And what we find here is a typical summary of the Apostle Paul's ministry during his missionary journeys. And particularly verses 1 through 12 speak of his experience in uh, Thessalonica and also Berea. So let's begin then with verse 1, showing Paul's ministry in Thessalonica. It says, Now when they had passed through Amphipolosis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. And so let's make a few observations first about these verses. We, we, we see that Paul went into a Jewish synagogue, and in verse 2 it says, He went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. The text says, as was his custom, because we see all throughout the book of Acts a familiar pattern for Paul. He arrives at a new town, he goes straight for the Jewish synagogue, and then he starts teaching about Christianity. He wins some converts, but he gets other people angry, and eventually he's run out of town. And then he goes to a new location and repeats the same process over and over again. And so he, he goes to Jewish synagogue, he teaches, has influence, gets chased away. This is Paul's customary pattern. 
And we see it many, many times in Acts. And notice the type of ministry he had in the synagogue in verse 3. It says, He reasoned with the Jews from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. The Scriptures being referenced here uh, were the Old Testament Scriptures. And Paul undoubtedly took the Jews to places like Isaiah 53 or the book of Psalms or the prophet Joel and showed the Jews prophecies about Jesus in their own Scriptures. And... This was often convincing. Verse 4, some of them were persuaded to, and joined Paul and Silas. So here we see Paul's strategy clearly laid out. He often went into sometimes hostile, hostile territory, the Jewish synagogue, and there he used their own religious documents to teach and convince others of the doctrines of the church. And of course, this was not always received well, as was the case in Thessalonica. Look at verse 5. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. And attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them, meaning Paul and Silas, out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying, There is another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So here's an account of a pretty significant uprising in Thessalonica. First, we see some Jews who became jealous of, of Paul's growing influence, and then they began a riot against him. They got a mob together, and what they did was they rushed to the place where they thought Paul and his companions were staying. They thought that Paul was, was in the home of, of, of a guy named Jason. We don't know much about this, this Jason dude. He's only mentioned here in these, first, in these few verses in Acts 17, but we can discern that he was likely a follower, a new follower of Paul, and that he had Paul and Silas in his home staying with him as a matter of hospitality probably for many months as these guys went about their ministry in Thessalonica. And so this mob went to Jason's house, but when they arrived, Paul and Silas were nowhere to be found, probably because they, they had caught wind of this impending mob and had fled. And so this group of riders, they grabbed Jason and some of the other Christian believers that were in the home and brought them before the city officials. And there they accused Jason and his Christian friends of insurrection. It says then in verse 7, they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. And then we see that these guys, they had to pay a deposit to guarantee that Paul and his followers would no longer cause unrest in the city. And so this event here clearly keeping with the pattern of Paul's ministry everywhere he went. He engaged in ministry of the word, got a following, others became jealous, rose up against him, and Paul was driven out of town. And that's exactly what we see happening then in verse 10. Look at verse 10. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, without a few uh, Greek women of high standing as well as men. And so Paul leaves Thessalonica and moves on to his next target, Berea. And we see here now a more open-minded, less aggressive Jewish community, a community who receives Paul's uh, teaching with curiosity. And then it says that they, they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things uh, were so. So this community of Jews, they listened to Paul's teaching and then they turned to scriptures their scriptures to see if what he was saying was true. And the fruitfulness of this is clear. Verse 12, many of them therefore believed. And if we kept on reading, what we would see is that Paul's usual pattern here repeats. Some angry Jews from Thessalonica actually come over to Berea, stir up trouble, and again, Paul gets run out of town. This time he's got to book it off to Athens. 
And not, and so much could be said about uh, Paul's experiences here in Thessalonica and Berea, but one thing that is totally clear is just how Paul and the believers in both cities, they were utterly devoted to studying and proclaiming the doctrines of the church. The ministry of the word permeates this entire section of Scripture, and from it we can derive uh, several lessons that we ought to consider for ourselves today. So let me share with you uh, several lessons, four really, that we ought to learn from the doctrinal mission of the early church. First is this, the study and proclamation of doctrine edifies and expands the church. The study, teaching, proclamation of doctrine, it was instrumental in propelling the church forward and in producing a great growth. Over and over again, we see in Acts uh, summary descriptions of the church growing. And what's interesting about these statements is that they often come immediately in the context of the study and proclamation of church doctrine. And so one example of this that's clear is Acts 4.4, which says, But many of those who heard the word, meaning the teaching of the church, believed. And the number of men came to about 5,000. Or we can look at Acts 8.12. When they believed Philip, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Or remember Acts 17, where Paul Pete teaches the word in Thessalonica, and people believe. Or the Bereans, Jews, open the scriptures and study it closely, and people believe. So the study and proclamation of church doctrine is instrumental in growing the church. God uses his activity to expand the church as... Uh, as people come to faith in Christ. But similarly, the study and proclamation of doctrine also helps to edify, edify the church and deepen the church. Many times we see, uh, in, in, see in Acts passages that show the Christian leaders going to newly established congregations to, quote, strengthen the disciples. And what were they doing to strengthen them? They were engaging in the ministry of the word. They were teaching them and helping them to understand Christian Doctrine. So there's an undeniable connection between the study of doctrine and the growth of the church. And this includes growth in numbers through evangelism and also growth in depth through ongoing sanctification. Now, teaching and study, it was not the only factor that produced growth. There's also the ministry of the Holy Spirit, miracles, persecution, the fellowship the believers had with one another. All of these things had a vital impact on the church's growth. Many different things work together to grow God's kingdom, but doctrinal study and teaching was one vital element. And I like to think, in some ways, that the study and teaching of doctrine is kind of like fertilizer, lawn fertilizer. My wife and I purchased a new construction home about three years back, and for three years now I've been trying to grow a nice lawn. Problem is, we have very hard kind of clay-like soil. And uh, it's tough to get grass to grow there. Now, I've done done okay with it. But let me tell you, my lawn is nothing like Pastor Gary Butler's lawn, (laughs) who actually lives just down the street from me. And I have to confess, I have a bit of lawn envy towards Pastor Gary. Because even now, when things are hot and starting to dry up a bit, Gary's lawn is thick and lush and green. And like a good neighbor, I, I know that it's my responsibility to try to compete with Gary. <laughs> because I've got to show him. He's got to understand. He's not the only guy who can have a nice lawn around here. And so I work hard to get my lawn thicker and more green. And how do I do that? Well, one thing I do is I fertilize it. You, know, you throw down nitrogen and phosphorus and whatever stuff is in fertilizer that, that stimulates, stimulates growth. Problem is I don't think I fertilize very well. It's like my fertilizer spreader is busted or something. 
because my lawn is striped. <laughs> See, I've got, I've got one of those broadcast spreaders that shoots the fertilizer out and is supposed to shoot it out, you know, kind of evenly. But uh, I, my spreader, it must lay down like a concentrated bit of fertilizer, like right below it, and then like a thinner application on either side. And because of this, I have stripes that are like 12 inches wide all throughout my lawn. Like wherever I walk with the fertilizer spreader, there's a nice, rich, green stripe of grass. And the places beside it, they're severely lacking because I didn't get the same amount of fertilizer. I actually think that Pastor Gary has secretly sabotaged (laughs) my fertilizer spreader. But you know what? My lawn is like, I think it's... It's kind of like the church, where there is a healthy fertilization of Christian doctrine. The roots of faith grow deep. And a congregation or individual uh, develops a lush, identifiable health to them. But when the application of, of doctrine is thin or insufficient, the spiritual vitality of a, of a church stagnates and it ceases to grow, or, or people's lives get, they get spiritually dry and they wither. And therefore, every congregation ought to have a clear and distinct emphasis on the study and proclamation of Christian truth. So so why do we have lengthy and meaty sermons here? It's because interacting with Christian doctrine grows the church. Why do we sometimes read our doctrinal statement in the service instead of just leaving it on the shelf to collect dust? It's because interacting with Christian doctrine grows the church. Why do we have worship songs that are rich and full of truth instead of just lighthearted, feel-good, Jesus-is-my-girlfriend kind of songs? It's because interacting with Christian doctrine and truth grows the church. Why do we have small groups that pursue deep conversations about critical areas of theology instead of just kind of hanging out and having a good time? Because discussing Christian doctrine grows the church. Having our minds consider the deep things of God and focusing our thoughts on the glorious realities of the gospel and then sharing the truth of Jesus with those around us, it edifies and expands the church. Never settle to be in a place that just gives lip service to the meaty Christian doctrines. Never be content to be in a congregation that doesn't have a rich ministry of the word. The doctrine of the church is something to be dug into and devoured and savored and tasted and enjoyed. And personal study of theology and listening to theological teaching ought to be a foundation in every Christian's life. Because the ministry of the word is an incredible means by which God grows his church. It is a fundamental way by which he matures and develops his people. And we strive to do that here in our ministries at Bethel, but how is that going for you? In your own personal life. How much time do you spend considering the beautiful doctrines of our Christian faith? Do you interact daily with the scriptures? Do you read theological books or blogs? Do you listen to theological teaching with earnestness and with zeal? Do you enjoy doctrinal discussions? When people start talking about theology, do you like that? Do you dig that? Or you just kind of eyes glaze over because you'd rather talk about your favorite sports team or pastime? See, is, is your immersion, exposure to Christian doctrine broad and regular? Or is it just something that happens just a little bit for a, a few moments here on, on the weekend? Every believer needs to have a steady diet of Christian doctrine because the study and proclamation of doctrine edifies and expands the church. This is the first lesson that we can learn from the doctrinal mission of the early church. And here's the second. All doctrine ought to be fully dependent on Scripture. 
All doctrine ought to be fully dependent on Scripture. Remember what Paul did in Acts 17 in Thessalonica. He reasoned with the Jews about Christian doctrine. But how did he do it? Verse 2, it says, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. So Paul's ministry in Thessalonica was deeply dependent on the Scriptures. And similarly, what did the Jews in Berea do? They opened the Scriptures and examined to see if the things that what Paul said were true. Verse 11, they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So scripture was front and center in the early believers' uh, doctrinal mission. Over and over again, we see uh, people in the church using scripture in their evangelistic ministry. So Acts 8, 35, then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him of the good news about Jesus. Or 17.2, and Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Or 18.28, and for Apollos powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the Scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. And that's just three examples. The book of Acts has about 30 different occasions where Christian believers quote and reference specific Old Testament Scriptures. So the written word, it was a, a bedrock to their faith. They constantly turned to God's word for truth and for guidance. The church's ministry was deeply dependent upon the word. And the same principle is equally relevant for us today. What should be our source of truth? What ought to be the foundation for our uh, doctrines that we teach? What, what is the basis for the theology that we, we study and we apply? It's God's word. God's word. This book here, it should be the first place and the last place that we turn to for truth and a godly perspective on life. But unfortunately, a deep dependency upon God's word, it's often lost in the church today. And there are a lot of churches out there that don't raise high the banner of truth. Rather, they function more as social clubs or community action committees. There are a lot of pastors out there who's preaching is more geared towards entertainment or warm, fuzzy, kind of feel-good messages than rather expounding the concrete doctrines of the church. And too many people turn to just self-help books or their own practical reasoning for guidance and for truth. And actually, there's, I think there's probably a lot of Christians that get uh, more advice from Oprah or Dr. Phil than they do from God's Word. And there are people whose worldviews are, are more determined by the TV shows they watch or the movies they rent than by this precious source of truth. And many Christian homes have children in them whose sense of right and wrong is more, uh, comes more from Sesame Street or Dora the Explorer than from parents who actually take the time to sit with their kids and open up for them the pages of this book. So how often do you turn to this book for guidance? What are the biggest influences in your life regarding how you think or make sense of things? See, truth be told, we often gravitate to beliefs, doctrines that are easy or convenient, rather than what's clearly taught in God's Word. We base a lot of our theological thinking on fanciful ideas or some personal experience. And a lot of our, a lot of our theological positions, they're based on kind of like, it seems right to me theology. And I'll never forget a conversation I had um, once with a devout Hindu on an airplane. We sat next to each other, struck up, struck up a conversation, which quickly turned to matters of doctrine. And I asked him to describe for me his belief system. And I'll never, and here's what he said in a nutshell. He said, I believe way back in time there used to be one God, but he got lonely. And so that God, he had sexual relations with himself and divided himself into two gods. And then those two gods had sexual relations and divided themselves and produced more gods and more gods and more gods to the point that everything you see now, including yourself and me, we are all offspring of the millions of gods. So, see, we're all really part of God. 
And God used to be like one big ocean. But now he's divided himself up into trillions and trillions of little droplets. And we're all trying to get back to being that big ocean again. How's that for crazy? I mean, I sat there and I listened to it. And then I challenged him and I said, you know, that's, that's very interesting. But can you give me a good reason for why you believe all that? Can you give me a compelling argument for why that must be true? And he couldn't do it. Because his belief system was not dependent on anything that anything solid, anything uh, definitive. It was just based on his own fanciful thinking. It was based on, well, it seems right to me, theology. And friends, how wonderful it is that God has given us something concrete and certain from which we can discern our doctrine and our theology, that we're not left to wander on our own and hope that our thinking and our beliefs are true. Yet how many Christians go about their lives not really dependent on the teachings of this book? They are in practice not much different from that Hindu I met on an airplane. Much of their doctrine is determined by what is most palatable to them. And they simply kind of decide for themselves what God must be like. They pick and choose. Well, I like that doctrine, and I don't like that one. And they kind of make God to be exactly who they want him to be. And instead of standing under the authority of God's word, they actually stand over God's word in judgment of it. And we see this all the time in in society today, like when liberal Christians say, we love Jesus. We love the teachings of Jesus, especially those when he says, you know, love your neighbor and follow the golden rule. But you know what? Those teachings when he says, I'm the only way to salvation. You know, that's too narrow-minded and offensive. So we don't like that. And we're just going to dismiss that part. That attitude is everywhere. And I encounter it all the time, even here in this church. You see, some people here at Bethel, they have a hard time with many doctrines that are taught plainly in this book because they're unappealing to them, like the concept of God's wrath and the eternal punishment of the wicked. Those things are not pleasant to think about, and so we tend to dismiss them. Or the nature of God's sovereignty. Sometimes we don't like that because it, It's a challenge to our sense of control, our ability to determine our own lives. Or some people here struggle to embrace the clear teachings of this book on matters of gender roles within marriage, or divorce, or homosexuality, or the exclusivity of the gospel, and sometimes other influences like our personal upbringing, or our political viewpoints, cloud our perception and our ability to just look at the word plainly. And those things keep us from really affirming what Scripture plainly teaches about things like social justice and the need to care for the poor, to share our wealth, financial stewardship, what it means to really love our neighbor and be radically devoted to Jesus Christ. And we often dismiss the clear teachings of Scripture because we don't like what we see, because we're clouded or biased by some other influence. And we end up because of that, then standing in judgment over God's word instead of being under it in submission. And so let let us not allow our doctrine to become, you know, it seems right to me theology. We ought to be deeply dependent on Scripture for every area of life, especially our doctrinal beliefs. So how much of your way of thinking, how much of your worldview is dependent on this book? How much of your thinking is, is directly guided by the pages of Scripture? How quickly are you to filter everything through the grid of God's word? Are you always standing in submission under God's word? Or are you sometimes standing over it in judgment and authority? Well, here's one way to know. Do you have any theological beliefs that are uncomfortable to you? 
Do you find yourself needing to affirm some doctrine you don't really like? Because you see it plainly in Scripture. See, if you can point to some things like that, it's a good indication that your doctrine is deeply dependent upon Scripture. And, and, and it's not dependent upon what's most appealing or attractive to you. But you know what? If all your doctrine fits into a nice, neat, clean little box that makes you happy and, and, and it doesn't really challenge you much, it doesn't really make you uncomfortable, there's nothing in there that, that, that you struggle with, then your beliefs might be derived more by what you want your doctrine to be rather than what God's word says your doctrine ought to be. We, uh, doctrine and, and scripture sometimes is uncomfortable and challenging and it's not what we want to see. But if we really stand under this book and its authority, we will embrace truths that are difficult for us to grip. So all doctrine ought to be totally dependent on Scripture and not kind of it seems right to me theology. That's the model of the early church and it's an important lesson for us. Here's another. Don't be afraid of doctrinal conflict even in the face of persecution. Don't be afraid of doctrinal conflict even in the face of persecution. Remember Paul's ministry pattern. Where did he go when he first entered a new town? Directly to the Jewish synagogue where he challenged the Jews on their theology in their own turf. That wouldn't have been easy. His method always won him converts, but it usually got him run out of town. Remember the mob in Thessalonica? And you would think after maybe like a few experiences like this that maybe Paul would change his strategy a little bit, but he didn't. He wasn't afraid of doctrinal conflict, even in the face of persecution. Here's another example of a firm commitment to stick to doctrinal truth, even in the face of real trouble. Acts 14. Acts 14, starting in verse 1, we see now at Iconium, Paul and Barnabas entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. So here's textbook Paul, get a new town, go to the Jewish synagogue, teach and win converts, and then a lot of people get angry at you. Verse 2, but the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. But check out Paul and Barnabas' response to this opposition. Verse 3, so they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord. Notice their stick with attitude here. They remained there for a long time. This is a situation where it certainly would have been easy to flee. Paul and Barnabas had many people that were poisoned against them, but that did not deter their mission. They stayed firm. They, were com- they continued to minister even in the face of persecution. You have to imagine that there was a constant doctrinal debate here where there was scorn and chastisement and ridicule and reproof. These guys stuck with it, though, for a long time. They were not afraid to take a stand for their beliefs. And this runs totally counter to our culture today. You know, it used to be that our culture affirmed a thing called absolute truth, which basically says that, 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 that claims of truth, they're either right or they're wrong. And people were expected to stand their ground and confidently defend their beliefs. And it was just assumed that anyone with any kind of backbone would stay true to their convictions and even try to convince others to believe the same, but not so anymore. We now live in a, in a postmodern era, which basically means that our society thinks that truth is relative. And it says that, you know, what's true for you is good for you, and what's true for me is good for me. And so there's no longer any definitive right and wrong, and everything is circumstantial, and everything is relative. And you know what? If I want to believe that there are purple polka-dotted pigs living on the moon, great. As long as I'm sincere about that, go for it. 
Now, that's a philosophy called relativism. And it's stupid. Right? Relativism states that a person cannot make any definitive claims of truth. It says you cannot say that something is true 100% beyond a shadow of a doubt because we cannot really know anything with certainty. All we have are personal opinions. And we cannot know if one opinion is more right or wrong than another. Now, that system of thinking actually makes perfect sense if there is no God. Because if you don't have somebody who knows everything, somebody who is omniscient, speaking and defining reality for you, how can you be certain that this whole life we experience is not some sort of illusion? How do you know that you just didn't pop into existence two seconds ago with like a complete fabricated memory of a past that didn't really happen? How do you know that you just didn't pop into existence just now? Prove it to me. Or for those of you who are science fiction movie watchers and you've seen the movie The Matrix, how do you know you're not in the Matrix right now? How do you know that the reality we see is not just some kind of simulation running on a computer on the desk of some blue-skinned alien someplace? I mean, how how do you know that that's not our reality? You see, in order to know something with certainty, you need someone who who knows everything, who then speaks to you and defines the construct of that reality for you. Otherwise, reality, you see, it could just be an illusion. You just don't, don't know if it is or not, and so therefore everything is doubted. Now, thankfully, as Christians, we have a God who helps us in this, doesn't, don't we? He knows everything, and he tells us and defines for us the construct of the reality in which we live. But atheists don't have that advantage. And that's why many of them are relativists. Because consistent atheist philosophy says that it's impossible to make definitive truth claims. Because how do I know that my perception of reality is correct? How do I know that what I'm seeing right now isn't just illusion, an illusion? How do I know that I'm not in the matrix? And if you cannot make any definitive truth claims, then you cannot argue or defend any doctrinal positions. And all of this has produced the great age of tolerance in which we now live, where the greatest virtue in society now is to be agreeable and tolerant of, 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 of other viewpoints and to never take a stand, to say, never say that you're right because doing so is considered closed-minded and arrogant. Instead, society says, you know, let's just all be tolerant of one another and get along. And don't challenge my position and I won't challenge yours. And let's just old hold hands and sing kumbaya and it'll all work out, right? And unfortunately, too many Christians are intimidated by this viewpoint. And they bought into the relativistic, tolerant value system. And they say, you know, my, my Christian beliefs, they're fine for me, but I'm not going to judge anybody else's as wrong. And Christians are fearful of doctrinal conflict. Fearful not to take a confident stand on the essential truths of our faith. And friends, let's not give in to the world's value system here. We need not to be afraid to stand for our beliefs, even if doing so is is counter to our culture's values, even if doing so might bring ridicule or scorn or judgment upon us. Don't be afraid to share the doctrine of our faith, even if it conflict is expected, even if it might bring some kind of persecution. If Paul was here, I think he would tell us that conflict was often necessary to get the word out. And it seems that the same is true for us today. So we ought not be afraid of doctrinal conflict, even in the face of persecution. Let's not give in to what the world values. Doing so will only stifle this message that we need to share. So that's the third lesson, and here's the fourth. Be passionate about our doctrinal mission. 
be passionate about our doctrinal mission. What drove the early church forward in its doctrinal mission? You know, why, did the, why did the leaders constantly teach and, and advocate for truth even in hostile territory? Why were the believers in the church so devoted to studying Scripture and listening to teaching? It was because the believers had a deep passion for what they believed. And this passion was an underlying motive behind Paul's ministry when he went from city to city and synagogue to synagogue. And we also see it earlier in the book here uh, in passages such as Acts chapter 2, which says, starting in verse 42, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship and to breaking the bread and the prayers. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Notice the eagerness and the passion for truth that the members of the early church had. It says they were devoted. They weren't just interested. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. It also says that they gathered every day. Day by day in the temple and in their homes for the purpose of what? For the purpose of worship, which is the celebration of doctrine, and for the purpose of teaching and fellowship, which is growing in doctrine. And so you get the sense all throughout Acts that the believers were deeply passionate for their doctrine. They couldn't get enough of it. They were even willing to put their lives on the line for it. And so how's that passion for you today? Do you yearn to learn more about God and the gospel? Are you eager to... Dig into the wonderful truths of our faith. Do you cherish the doctrines of the church as something that is wonderful and special to you? Is theology generally something that's disinteresting to you? Is it something that you tire of? Something that when it gets hard, you're like, I don't want to think about that. Is theology something you just don't have a lot of interest in? I mean, how eager are you to grow in your doctrinal understanding? Don't think you've got it all figured out. Because God is infinite, which means that there is always more to learn and understand about Him. And do you know what will be a core experience of God's people for all of eternity? It will be celebrating and studying Christian truth. And even in the new heavens and the new earth, we won't have God totally figured out because He's infinite. And so you know what we'll continue to do? Marvel at Him. Learn about Him. Ask questions and seek answers. The passionate pursuit of doctrine and theological understanding will continue for all of eternity. So you better get used to it. Cultivate now in your life a deep appreciation and passion for Christian doctrine. And you do this by studying the scriptures, by spending time listening to teaching, by reading good books and articles about theological matters, by taking classes and having small group discussions, and by exposing yourself more and more to to doctrine. By doing that, you will enrich your passion and appreciation for these precious truths of our faith. Just dig into it. Immerse yourself in it. Again, don't just make this short time on the weekend be your only exposure to Christian truth. It needs to be the ongoing daily experience of our lives. So how much are you doing this? How eager are you to pursue a deeper and richer understanding of God and the gospel? I actually think that the measure of a person's passion for Christian doctrine is often a good measure for the depth of their spiritual life. Did you get that? The measure of a person's passion for Christian doctrine is often a good measure for the depth of their spiritual life. And so if you are disinterested in doctrinal matters, it probably means that you're somewhat disinterested in our Savior. And this is obviously not a good place to be. Vibrant Christians love to learn about God. 
They love to have their minds stretched and their understanding of Christ expanded. Is that you? What steps are you going to take to more earnestly pursue an understanding of these precious truths? And as you cultivate a deeper understanding of the doctrines of the church, do you know what ought to happen? You ought to then proclaim that doctrine boldly and with purpose. You share it with the people around you. You want to gather with Christians to discuss it. You want your friends and your family, your children, your co-workers to see and understand the things that you are seeing, that you are, are, are loving more and more deeply because you cannot keep it inside and you're excited for your doctrine. You want others to know it as well. And so this Father's Day weekend... Let me ask you men, how eager are you to communicate doctrine to your children, regardless of their age? How earnest are you to lead your home and to guide those in your household towards truth and understanding? I mean, do you have such a thing as family devotions or reading the Bible together? And as you do these things, are these things that you look forward to and you cherish? Or are they just kind of like a routine that you simply have to go through because you feel that you ought? Men, fathers, are you bringing greater doctrinal understanding into your home as part of your God-given role and responsibility as a man. And your children, your wife, yourself, are you all growing in your knowledge of the Lord? Part of that, just facilitating that, is an essential component of what it means to be a father. And let me ask uh, then everyone else here, Are you spreading and proclaiming these truths out in the world? Are you going to help other people see and understand what you know? The church has been given a mission to spread its doctrine to the minds of unbelievers. So how well are you doing with that? How well are you reaching your neighbors with that? You know, two weeks ago we talked about the early church being a bold witness for for the gospel and waving the banner of the faith high and boldly and strongly and confidently. How's that going? Have you made any steps in that, or has that just kind of been forgotten? And a couple of weeks ago, we challenged you. We, we distributed this little flyer here, this, this flyer about a, this salt and light, loving our neighbor initiative that's taking place all throughout Northwest Indiana and many different churches, including here at Bethel. What we're trying to do is, is be more intentional in reaching our neighbors. If you didn't get one of these, pick one up. They're out there in the commons and the walls and the desks out there. But are you doing this? You need to take a prayer walk in your neighborhood this month. Maybe you try to meet a new neighbor or be more intentional in your conversation with them. Let's resolve to be bold ambassadors for the doctrine of the truth, doctrine of the church, in your home, in your neighborhood, in your community, your workplace, wherever you find yourself. And uh, you know what? If, that's, if that seems hard to do because you're fearful or because you're not confident or just not too emboldened, you know one way to help? Doing so, proclaiming the doctrine of the truth, uh, of the church it gets much easier if you de- develop a deeper passion for the things that we believe. Because then you won't be able to keep them inside. You won't be able to keep them a secret because they're so precious to you. And you love them so much you want everybody to know it. So cultivate a deep passion for the doctrine of the church that will only help you take seriously responsibility to share and to teach and to spread it within your home, in your neighborhood, anywhere you find yourself. Don't keep this wonderful doctrine of the church a secret. It is life. It is joy. It is something we will treasure for all of eternity. So let's cherish it. Let's share it. Let's grow in it. Let's celebrate it. 
always with great joy and earnestness. For Christ's sake. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we give you great praise and thanks and joy for this tremendous doctrine that you have given us and that you have revealed it to us so plainly in your word. What a privilege that is to have received that, that you have revealed yourself and your character and your love for us, to us, that we might study it and learn it and enjoy it. And Father, we confess to you just the fact that we often don't take that opportunity seriously enough and our hearts become dull or cold or withered to the tremendous truths of our faith. So enliven our hearts again with the great zeal and earnestness and delight and joy in these tremendous spiritual truths. And then help us to share those, to disciple our family and our children and one another and unbelievers to see these wonderful truths that are real, that we might advance your kingdom and please and glorify you in it and that we also would be built up and conformed more into the likeness of Christ as we grow in our knowledge of the truth.